Hello and welcome to the Beach House 34 True Crime and Paranormal Podcast. This is the reading of the trial testimony for Darley Routier, Part 7. And as I've said before in other trial readings, if you've been listening up to this point, you know the background behind the story. I'm not going to repeat it here, mainly, of course, to save time. But I will have all of the links to everything, including the entire Darley story, which started as a three-part episode, and then went into her hearing to hold her without bond, and then finally the actual jury trial, which is actually where we're at right now. So I'll have all of those links for you in the show notes. Uh, today's trial has a few things. Um, the first thing that we're going to cover is a very short, and it is very short, but it is um, something that was included in the trial and called the gag order hearing, I guess, for lack of a better term. So we'll first go over that, or you'll hear that. And then you will hear from Dr. Patrick Dillon, who tended to Damon upon his arrival, and then subsequently ended up in the um, in surgery with Darley. And then next, you'll hear from a nurse by the name of Jody Fitz. So, with all that being said, let's get on with it. So the first thing that we're going to cover is the gag order discussion. Um, there's a couple of names in here that are going to pop up. And as those do, I will let you know who exactly they are. So they all gather in the courtroom and the court says, all right, let the record reflect that these proceedings are being held outside the presence of the jury and all parties in the trial are present. Mr. Greg Davis, again, the prosecutor, says, it's my understanding that there is a gag order in this case and that this applies to witnesses and potential witnesses. The court then says that is correct. Mr. Greg Davis continues and says, my understanding was that yesterday and also this morning that witnesses that I would expect to be called by the defense since they were sent out of the courtroom when I asked that the rule be invoked as to all witnesses, that those witnesses have spoken with the press after the testimony concluded yesterday. Sorilda Routier, and that is Darren's mother, and Darley Key, and that is Darley's mother, were speaking about the testimony given by Dr. Santos and testimony presented by the state of Texas. My understanding was that Darley Key, in fact, held a short news conference this morning again, discussing the nature of Dr. Santos's testimony, as well as a number of witnesses and the types of testimony that the defense expected to present in this case. Now, again, it was my understanding that we had a gag order. My recollection is that Darley Key, in fact, was warned by this court in an earlier hearing concerning the gag order. The court made it very clear to her what the gag order meant to her. Mr. Mulder, again, part of Darley's defense team, says, well, judge, I don't think, and then the court interrupts him and says, just a minute. Mr. Mulder then says, certainly no one is. The court again interrupts him and says, just a minute. Anything else? 
Mr. Greg Davis, again, the prosecutor, says, and also, again, I just need some ground rules on our comments to the media, too. The court says, well, both sides are under the gag order. If Ms. Key has done this, we'll take that up. Mr. Greg Davis then says, yes, sir. Just in particular, comments made by counsel to media after the conclusion of the testimony. I mean, if we're going to go into how the case is going and what we feel about the testimony, then certainly the state would like to put our position out there every day, too. The court says, all right, well, both sides are instructed not to discuss the case until it's over. It's just that simple. Mr. Mulder, again, part of Darley's defense team, says, well, judge, we understand that. But I think as I read the court's order, and I won't refer to it as a gag order because the court doesn't refer to it as a gag order. But as I understand the court's order, anyone, including these spectators here, are certainly free to comment on anything that went on in court. I mean, that's fair game. And if they want to give their interpretations, so be it. I mean, you know, I haven't come in here crying to anybody about anything. I'm probably the only one. Mr. Mosty, also a part of Darley's defense team, says, well, for instance, I saw Dr. Santos on TV giving an interview myself. Mr. Greg Davis, again, part of the prosecution, says, well, again, we don't have a problem. If we're allowed to comment on the case, then we're more than happy to do that. We just want to be on even footing here. The court then says, well, you will be able to comment on the case and what goes on in the courtroom every day. Mr. Greg Davis then says, okay, that's fine. The court then says, that's fine there. Mr. Greg Davis again says, we'll do that then. The court says, we'll deal with Ms. Key later. Mr. Mulder, again, Darley's defense team, says, Judge, you know, she, likewise, is free to comment on anything that goes on in court and give her interpretation. I'm sure the reporters, the court then, again, interrupts him and says, the court is well aware of that. The court will, Mr. Mulder says, well, then I needn't waste any more time, Judge. We're ready to go. The court then says, who is your first witness? All right, bring the jury in, please. Next up to testify is Dr. Patrick Dillon, and he tended to Damon upon his arrival at the hospital. He was also in the surgery room with Dr. Santos when Darley was brought in. The direct examination begins with Mr. Toby Shook, part of the prosecution. Would you state your name, please? Patrick Dillon. And spell your last name for the court reporter. D-I-L-L-A-W-N. Okay. And how are you employed, sir? I'm a resident at Baylor University Medical Center. Okay. And could you tell the jury what a resident is? A resident is a physician in training between medical school and private practice. Okay. Tell the jury, where are you from originally? I'm from Houston. Okay. Tell the jury your educational and professional training, which allows you to hold a position of a resident in training. I did my undergraduate work at the University of Texas at Austin, and I went to medical school at the University of Texas at Houston, graduated in 1993, and subsequently entered my residence at Baylor, which I am continuing. How long have you been there at Baylor? Three and a half years. 
Okay. And are you assigned to a particular section of the hospital? We have different rotations of the hospital at Baylor and John Peter Smith Hospital. Currently, where are you located? What section are you located in? I'm currently a float resident, which means I cover people in between hospitals. Okay, let me turn your attention back to June 6, 1996, and ask if you were working at Baylor on that day. I was. In the early morning hours? Yes. And what part of the hospital were you working in on that particular day? We were on call that day, and we're probably in the OR part of the time and in the ER part of the time, working on the floors part of the time. Okay, and did you perform surgeries there at Baylor? Yes. Okay, you were there with other doctors and supervising surgeons and things like that? Yes. Do you remember going to the ER oh, around 3.30 in the morning that day? I don't remember specifically going. I remember we were there. Okay. Were you there when some victims came in from a stabbing incident? Yes. How many victims were coming in there at Baylor? I think they initially mentioned possibly two children and an adult and one child and an adult eventually came in. Okay. Did they give you some time that y'all could get prepared for what was coming? No, they usually tell you we're coming and going to be six minutes out, 10 minutes out. I don't specifically remember how long they said. Okay. Did you have a lot of doctors down there at that particular time? Yes, the ER physicians were there and our entire, there were four people on our surgical team as well as Dr. Santos's staff by chance happened to be in the emergency room. Was Dr. Santos the supervising physician there? Yes. And about 3.30 or so, did two people arrive, the stabbing victims, arrive there in the emergency room? Yes, they did. Did you see one of them right away? Yes, I did. And where did you see that person? I saw them at Trauma Room 1 at Baylor. Okay, and who was that? That was a young child. Okay, and what was his condition when you saw him? He was in extremis. He was being coded, which means they were performing CPR. How long were you in there? Just a few minutes. Okay, while you were in there, was he, well, what was his condition? He was basically, he was dead on arrival. Okay, after you went in there, what is, what's the next thing that you did? It was me, Dr. Santos, and Dr. Lee that initially went into his room and we did the basic resuscitation procedures, instructed the nurse to start IVs and get the whole process moving, put a monitor on him and continued the CPR, and he showed no signs of life and he was pronounced dead by Dr. Santos. Okay, so y'all did the best you could working on him? Yes, but it was to no avail. No. All right. After you did that, what's the next thing you did? Well, we had the child and he was on his back on a backboard, which they're usually transported on. He was covered with blood and he had an endotracheal tube in his throat. And we, 
once he was pronounced dead, we usually look for the cause of the injuries and we rolled him over and we saw multiple stab wounds on his back. All right. Mr. Toby Shook then asks, uh, may I approach the witness? The court says you may. He then says, now, let me show you what's been entered into evidence as states exhibits 52-J and 52-K. Are those the photographs of the boy that you treated? Yes, they are. Okay, 52-J, is that a photograph of him as he appeared on his back? Yes, sir. And then as you rolled him over, are these the stab wounds that you saw? Yes, they are. Okay, let me let you look at State's Exhibit 53-C. Do you recognize those as being copies of Baylor medical records of Darley Routier? Yes, I do. Okay, did you, after leaving the boy, did you go to another room to treat the other stabbing patient? Yes, I did. And who was that patient? That was Mrs. Routier. Okay, do you see her here in the courtroom today? Yes, I do. Could you point her out, please? She's sitting right there. Okay, that woman over here in the green plaid dress? Yes, okay. Your Honor, if the record could reflect that the witness has identified the defendant, the court then says, yes, sir. Mr. Shook then continues, what was going on with Mrs. Routier when you entered the room? Well, she had arrived approximately the same time as the boy, and two of the lower, I was the more senior resident, two of the lower level residents had gone into the room to help her. And when I came in, the resuscitation process was ongoing. And at my initial examination, she was covered with blood. She appeared to have a stab wound on her neck, which was either she or one of the techs was holding pressure on it with a gauze bandage. Her vital signs were stable. She was awake and alert and responsive. She did not state she had lost consciousness. And she appeared to have another stab wound in on her left shoulder and her right arm. Okay, you make an assessment there when you first see them in the emergency room. Is that right? Yes, we do. Now, when you say she was alert and conscious, did she seem to be aware of everything going on around her? Yes, she did. Okay, and do y'all typically ask questions about being alert and conscious? Yes, we do. It's part of our primary survey. Okay, and you specifically inquired as to whether she had lost consciousness? Yes, I did. And what was her response? No. All right. And where was this wound on the neck? It was across the midline, approximately going to the right, approximately 10 centimeters. Someone was holding pressure on that. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Did you ask her anything else? Did you ask her how she got that wound? Yes, I did. What did you say to her? I don't specifically remember the exact words, but I asked her how the wounds occurred. We have to know if they were a knife, scissors, a gun. She said she was stabbed. Okay, did she say who stabbed her? Yes, she did. Okay, who did she say stabbed her? She said it was a white male. Okay, did she say what he looked like or anything like that? She gave a very limited description of a man in a baseball cap, and she told me she only saw him from the back. Only saw him from the back? Yes, sir. Okay. How long was she there in the emergency room? 
I know this from the record. She was there for 13 minutes. Okay, pretty quick time. That's a very fast time. All right. Now, someone with a neck injury like she had in that area of the neck, what is that called? What area of the neck do y'all refer to that as? We divide the neck into three zones, and that is how we manage them. And that is what we call a zone two injury. Okay. And how do you manage a zone two injury? It's just these kinds of injuries are divided up either for penetrating injuries, either by a stab wound or a gunshot wound. And there's a, you can either manage them selectively or go to the operating room. You can do studies or go to the operating room. It's sort of a clinical judgment if of what we do. And we base criterion if they've penetrated a muscle called the platysma, which is below the skin. And in her case, the wound was clearly through the platysma on superficial examination. And that's as far as you want to go. Okay, and why is that? Because you might disrupt a blood clot that's tamponating a vessel, which means it's keeping it from bleeding. And you could make a patient worse with in an uncontrolled situation outside the operating room. So the best way to control that is to take her into the operating room and do some exploratory surgery. Yes, take her to the operating room and see if she has anything significant injured. Okay, and that is what y'all did at that time. That's what we did. Okay, did you participate in the surgery? Yes, I did. Okay, and can you describe that surgery to the jury, please? Well, when she was obviously put to sleep and prepped with sterile solutions, the incision that we typically make is along the edge of the sternomastoid muscle, which is this muscle in your neck if you turn it to the side. Her incision was basically made already. So what we did is we undermined the skin a little bit to expose it and retracted the skin back and just looked and ligated the vessels that were bleeding and looked for, what does that mean? That means tying them off to stop them from bleeding with a suture. Okay, and then what? What's the next thing you saw? Well, when we looked at her, we saw several small veins bleeding, which we tied off. And these, the veins in the neck are close to the internal jugular vein, which is a large vein. So they were bleeding. And once we stopped those, the wound was what we called hemostatic. The bleeding had stopped. And then we just irrigated it and looked around for anything that looked suspicious for a major vessel injury, an injury to the windpipe, injury to the esophagus, and we didn't see anything. All right, about how long was this wound? It was about 10 centimeters approximately. Now, did you get out and measure it yourself with a ruler? No, I didn't. I estimate the length of wounds. And did you measure the depth of the wound at all, or was it an estimation? Well, I usually don't measure the depth. Uh, we don't think in those terms. I would call it a superficial wound. Okay, and what do you mean by a superficial wound? I mean by a superficial wound that it did not penetrate any of the deeper structures you'd call a deep wound would penetrate the muscles, the vessels. It just penetrated basically the skin and the subcutaneous tissue, which is what we refer to as the fat underlying the skin. 
And there's a muscle in the subcutaneous tissue in that area of the neck called the platysma, which is also penetrated. That was the extent of the injury. So it cut through the skin, the fat, and then what y'all call the platysma. Platysma, yes, which is located in the in the subcutaneous fat, which is the fat, right? Yes, sir. Okay. Did you see any other injuries on her and treat any other injuries while she was being operated on? I didn't specifically. The other residents sewed up the wounds on her shoulder and her arm. They were irrigating the wound. Where was the wound on her shoulder? The wound on her shoulder overlied the top of her humerus, the bone here, and it was also a superficial wound. It was just closed with sutures. Okay, just closed it with sutures? Yes. And there was another wound on her right arm. There was a wound on her right arm on the, what we call the dorsal aspect, about right here. And it was approximately an inch long. It was also superficial. It was down to the bone in that point, but the bone at that point is very superficial in the arm. And these wounds did not approach any dangerous structures. Let me show you what's been marked as States Exhibit 28-B. Mr. Toby Shook then says, could we have the doctor step down? The court then says, yes, please step down, doctor. I'll, Mr. Toby Shook then says, I'll caution you to keep your voice up. The witness then says, okay. He then continues to question. If you'll step back so all the jurors can see, okay, looking at States Exhibit 28-B, do we see the wounds you treated on the neck and shoulder? Yes. And if you would just point those out to the jury. This is the neck wound that we explored right here, and this is the shoulder wound, which we closed primarily. Just cleaned it out and sewed it up? Yes. Then 28-A, is this the wound here on the right forearm? Yes. Again, was that just cleaned out and then sewn up? Yes, sir. You say it went to the bone. Yes, on this part of the forearm, there's a, the bone is not very far under the skin, okay? And it went through the muscle to the bone, but there was no fracture. There was no fracture. So the bone is very close to the skin here. Relatively close, yes. So we see another wound here, just above that wound. Was that also present? Yes, it was. That was simply a superficial abrasion, which we did nothing about. Okay, all right. Mr. Toby Shook then says, go ahead and have a seat. Do you recall approximately how long this entire process took place, the operation itself? It took approximately 45 minutes. Okay. And then what was done with Miss Routier after that operation? Where did she go? She was awakened from anesthesia and transported to the intensive care unit. Did you go visit her later that day to check up on her and see how she was doing? Yes, I did. Okay. And where was she located when you did that? She was in the intensive care unit. Okay. How was she doing then? She was doing very well medically. Okay. When you saw her, was she, well, what was her mental condition? Was she awake and alert? Yes, she was. Suffering from the after effects of the anesthesia in any way? Not that I can tell. She was doing very well. She was awake and alert. Very appropriate. Okay. You've seen patients that suffer from grogginess from that, haven't you? Yes. Okay. You didn't see any signs of that in her? 
No, sir. Okay. I guess being a physician, you are familiar with people that are in shock. Is that right? Yes, I am. Okay. In medical shock or, well, I guess both. Are there different kinds of shock? Well, what I would term as shock is somebody who has a low blood pressure. Okay. And is that medical shock we're talking about? Yes. Was she suffering from that? No, not at any time during her hospitalization was she in shock. Okay. And as you stated, I guess, she seemed alert? Yes. Answered your questions? Yes. Okay. Now, she was in the ICU. Is that right? Yes, she was. Okay. What kinds of patients are usually there in the ICU? Well, the ICU has a nurse-to-patient ratio that's less than a floor, which is usually either one to one or two to one. One nurse has one to two patients, and there are specific monitors we have for patients, a heart monitor, an oxygen monitor, and we can also place some invasive monitors, which we can't on the floor. It's just for more ill patients that are on the floor. Okay, was Darley Routier critically ill at that point? No, she wasn't. Okay, you say this neck wound was, you describe it as being superficial. Is that right? Yes, it was. Okay, if this incident had happened, let's say in a household accident, the same type of cut, would she have stayed there in the hospital? In my opinion, we could have watched her for 24 hours and discharged her home. Okay, and done that just as a precaution? Yes, she was fine at that point, just as a precaution to watch her for a day. Okay, when you went around and, well, let me ask you this. Did she seem to be suffering from what I believe you call closed head injuries? No. What are closed head injuries? A closed head injury is an injury to the head in which the the skull is obviously a very strong, rigid structure, and there's no room for anything to expand in the brain. So if you get any kind of bleeding, any kind of injury, any type of injury, it induces swelling. And if you have a closed head injury, it just means your head is injured and it caused some sort of bleeding or swelling that raises the pressure. A very mild closed head injury is a concussion. A very severe closed head injury would be somebody in a coma. And then it's just graded from, it's a very large scale, from mild to very severe. Okay, you didn't see any evidence of closed head injury at all? None at all. Okay, when you went to check on her, did you, were you aware for some reason of her, or did you take note of her emotional makeup, how she was acting in any way? Yes, I did. Okay, and what were you expecting when you went to check on her? Well, in a situation where a person has lost a very close family member, especially a spouse, or a mother has lost a child, you really don't know what to expect. You expect somebody who is in very deep grief, and it's something you have to be very careful, very careful of when you talk to somebody, and you need to be very sensitive. Okay, describe Miss Routier's emotional condition. When I initially saw her, she was surrounded by family members. There were many policemen around in the intensive care unit, and initially she was a little bit agitated about what the policemen were doing and why they wanted to photograph her, photograph her wounds. 
Okay. She did not seem particularly upset other than that. Okay. Did you ever see tears streaming down her face? At the end of my visit, she did cry a little bit. She had a photograph of her children in her hand, and then she cried a little bit. Okay, did you see her the next day also? Yes, I did. In fact, do you recall when she was discharged? Yes, I do. When was that? That was on June 8th, two days after admission. Okay, did you see her every day? Yes, I did. Okay, check on her wounds every day? Yes, I did. Okay, what about the next day? The 7th, was she crying that day when you saw her? No, she was not. What was her emotional condition at that time? She seemed fine. Okay, did you check her over before she was released and discharged? Yes, I did. Did you talk to her at that time? Yes, I did. Okay, did she talk to you about anything that the police had asked her? Yes, she did. I can't remember the specific details, but it concerned a knife, which she was attempting to explain, I would assume, some piece of evidence that she had been confronted with. And she was trying to explain to me how she, this knife was, somehow she could explain the reason it had something on it. I don't remember the specific details, but it was about a knife. Okay. And I told her I just really didn't want to hear about those things. Okay. You were there to check on her physical condition, her medical condition. Yes, medical condition. Okay, let me ask you, when you're checking her, are you checking her wounds, checking her overall physical condition? Yes. Okay, now she had the wound to her neck, her shoulder, and this wound to the right arm. Is that right? Yes, she did. Okay, now let me show you what's been marked as State's Exhibit 52-A. Do you recognize that as a photograph of Miss Routier? Yes. Do you see her right arm there and the bruising on her right arm? Yes. What type of injury is that? What's that called? That's what we would term medically a hematoma. It's a large bruise. Okay. And how are those caused? In particular, that type of bruise. This type of bruising, if I just saw it, I would think it was caused by a very heavy blunt injury. Okay, and explain to the jury what a blunt injury is. We say blunt as in not something sharp, striking your hand against a door, being in a car wreck and hitting the steering wheel, something in that nature. Is that pretty severe blunt trauma? That is a fairly severe blunt trauma, yes. Okay. This is something that we, if I saw it on somebody's arm, I would probably want to x-ray their arm. Okay. At any time during your examination of Darlie Routier, did you ever see that type of injury to her right arm? No. Okay. And is that something that you look for in your examination of her? Yes. Okay. At any time... On the 6th, did you see any evidence of that type of injury to her right arm? None at all. The 7th? No. The 8th? No. Okay. Now, if that injury, that blunt trauma, had occurred on June 6th, about 2.30 in the morning, 1996, would you have seen evidence of that injury on her right arm, doctor? In my opinion, yes. This is a lot of blood. Yes. Okay, you saw no evidence of that injury whatsoever. No. Okay, 
That's not something that would be caused by an IV or anything, would it? No, I've never seen such a severe hematoma caused by an intravenous line. Okay, let me show you some other photographs marked 52-G, 52-H, and 52-F. And let me ask you if you can recognize those photos. These appear to be Mrs. Routier in the intensive care unit, and they're photographs of her neck wound and her arm wounds. Okay, on the right arm there, do you see any evidence of the... The court then interrupts and says, just a minute, please. Please confer in silence, please. Thank you. Go ahead. Mr. Mulder says, and of course he's part of uh, Darley's defense team, judge, excuse me, but I'm not able to confer in silence. The court then says, well, I mean, keep your voices down. We hear too much when you speak to each other. I don't mind you speaking, but let's keep the voices down. Mr. Mulder says, well, we're doing the best we can. The court then says, do better. Thank you. Go ahead. Mr. Toby Shook then continues his questioning. Judge, can I have the witness step down, please? The court says, yes, please step down. A doctor again, let me caution you to keep your voice up. Okay. 52-G, is that a photograph that we can see of Miss Routier's right arm? Yes. Okay. And if you could just watch your shoulder here. If you can keep it down, because we have jurors, in fact, I'll just get you to go along the jury rail in a moment, but the blood we see here, is that from an injury, abrasions that were on the arm? No, that looks like dried blood. Just blood dries and it's hard to wash off. She does not look like she's been cleaned. Okay, and holding 52-F also, is that another photograph of the arm? Yes, this is the same arm, different aspect. Okay, if you had seen evidence of this blunt, if she had had blunt trauma on the 6th of June, would you have seen it somewhere here in the ICU on her arm? From what I saw in the photograph, I think we would be able to see it on this part of the arm right here. Okay, if you could just start at the end of the jury and show them, did they see this other bruise? We'll go over that in a minute after you finish that. All this on here is dried blood from either her neck wound or the wound here. And if you could show 32-A, okay, you saw no evidence of that type of injury whatsoever. No, none at all. Mr. Toby shook and says, okay, you can have your seat. Judge, that's all the questions we have. I'll pass the witness. The court then says, Mr. Douglas, Mr. Preston Douglas, again, part of Darley's defense team, says, yes, sir. The court then says, all right. And then Mr. Douglas begins his cross-examination. Dr. Dillon, I just want to go through a few things with you. I was corrected yesterday and was told that you did a lot of the dictation that goes into these records. Is that right? Yes, I did. All right. Did you review your discharge summary that you dictated and that Dr. Santos approved? Yes, I did. And you characterized the wound to Miss Routier's neck as a large slash wound. Is that right? Yes. And if it was previously testified that this slash would penetrated the platysma muscle and was previously testified by a medical expert that it reached to two millimeters of the carotid artery, you wouldn't disagree with that expert, would you? What I saw in the operation was the 
I saw a very small portion of the carotid sheath that was nicked. No, but you saw the sheath. I saw the sheath, the carotid sheath. Yes. The point is, if it has been previously, you wouldn't quarrel with anything Dr. Santos says, would you? I couldn't understand you. You wouldn't quarrel or disagree with any of Dr. Santos's observations, would you? Mr. Toby shook. Then, of course, part of the prosecution says, Judge, I'll object to that. It's going into comparison of testimony. The court then says, sustained. Mr. Douglas continues, well, if there's been previous testimony that the Mr. Shook says, again, same objection. The court says, well, and then Mr. Preston Douglas says, is Dr. Santos more experienced or less experienced than you? Dr. Santos is more experienced. Okay. If he made an approximation to the jury of the length of the, and again, Mr. Toby Shook says, judge, Mr. Douglas says, I can ask this question, Your Honor. Mr. Shook says, I'm objecting to it as comparison of the testimony. The court then says, let's hear the question first. Mr. Douglas then says, he's an expert witness, Your Honor. The court says, I understand. Let's hear the question. Mr. Douglas then says, if he, you wouldn't quarrel with any measurements that he gave this jury, would you? Again, Mr. Toby Shook says, again, I'll object to comparison of testimony. He doesn't know. Mr. Douglas then says, I didn't. Mr. Toby Shook says, what? Mr. Douglas then says, if I might respond, I did not give a comparison. I just asked if he would quarrel with his attending physician. The court then says, I understand the question. If that question is asked, it will be permitted. Go ahead. Mr. Douglas then says, you wouldn't quarrel with anything Dr. Santos told this jury relating to the carotid artery, the carotid sheath, or the distance of the wound. Mr. Shook then again says, judge, we have to object because the witness does not know what Dr. Santos said to this jury. Mr. Douglas says, I said, Mr. Shook then says, that's a comparison of testimony. The court then says, sustained. Let's get on with the next question. You can rephrase your question, please. Mr. Douglas then says, all right. In your opinion, the carotid sheath, would you agree that is approximately two to three millimeters in thickness? Approximately, right? And if the carotid sheath is cut into and you sever the carotid artery, what happens? You bleed. Bleed? Well, it depends on how much of the, I mean, you could get a laceration of the carotid artery that could spontaneously stop. Okay, then if you sever the internal jugular vein, you're going to say that that could just stop. If there's enough muscular tissue overlying it, yes, it could stop. It could just stop. So someone could have a severed internal jugular vein. You're telling this jury that they could just walk around and it could just stop bleeding and everything would be fine and they continue on. Is that what you're trying to tell this jury? That is possible. If you have a gunshot wound to the internal jugular vein, no, I'm, and that vein is covered by some structure, any structure, any structure. They can apply pressure on it. It can stop. If you have an injury where the wound is completely open, there's nothing to tampen on it. It will not stop. 
But your testimony is that people could have a severed jugular vein and that bleeding would stop. I have seen that before. All right. Now, what about a slash wound, an incised wound to the neck that severs the carotid artery and severs the jugular vein? It would depend on the circumstances. You've seen a lot of people die from that type of injury, haven't you? I've seen a few. A few die. That's a serious wound, is it not? A transection of the carotid artery? Yeah. Would you consider cutting the carotid artery in half or the internal jugular vein to be a serious wound? Well, the carotid artery is much more serious than the jugular vein. Okay. Would it be a serious wound? Yes. All right. When you visited Ms. Routier, how many times did you go to see her in the hospital over those days? What, three days? I saw her twice. I saw her in the operating room on the 6th. I saw her later that day in ICU. And I saw her once a day on the following days. So how many times total? I guess five. Okay. And did you make notes of every time you saw her? I made one note a day besides the operative note. Okay. And did you have a chance to read through your notes in terms of what nurses said with respect to Mrs. Routier? I did not read the nurse's notes. Would it surprise you that when you talk about her reaction, that there are notes and references in the medical records that you can refer to that at various times over those three-day periods, she was tearful, she was frightened, she was very upset, crying, anxious about the events that had taken place, and the nurses noted that, and they put that in their notes. Are you asking if that would surprise me? Yes. No, it would not surprise me. And you certainly would rely on what those nurses said because they're with her a lot. Are they not? Yes, they are. Okay. But, doctor, how old are you? 30. And you and I are about the same age. Do you have children? No, I don't. Have you ever lost a niece or nephew? No. Maybe had a next-door neighbor who had a child that you kind of got to know and played with this child and that child died? No. You're not here to tell this jury that you feel that there is one singular appropriate way to, react, to relate to a tragic loss, are you? Not one singular appropriate way, no. And is it true that the description of a flat effect can relate to a depressed person, someone who is deeply depressed? Possibly. Isn't it also true that people can gain a great deal of strength from family members? Yes. And isn't it true that there's a lot of records that show that the family was very supportive and was present by Darley's side while she was recovering? Yes. Now, I want to talk to you a little bit about the term superficial. In layman's terms, people think of superficial, they think of a scratch or a cut or a flesh wound. Would you agree with me? I'm not a layman. I think of it in a different way. Well, all right, and that's the whole point. You think of superficial in a different way. Is that right? Yes. If these people are laymen that are on the jury, they may think of the word superficial different from the way you think of superficial. Is that right? Well, they might. Okay. What I mean by that is superficial is, in effect, in many ways, to a medically trained professional, a term of art 
meaning that a cut was superficial to a structure, meaning it came to a structure, but it didn't nick or cut the structure. Is that right? Did you say term of art? Well, it's a medical term in some respects. When you say, is it not true, doctor, when you say it's superficial to the platysma or superficial to the carotid sheath, that it nicked it and did not totally obstruct it? That's a different use of the word superficial. When you describe a superficial wound, it means that it was superficial and not deep. You weren't describing it in relation to any structure. You're describing it in relation to the wound itself. Okay. You know, you could say that the coronary artery is superficial to the heart, but they're both deep. That's my point. That's my point. And let me ask you this. If in layman's terms, as Justice Layman would say, it's not normal to have an hour and 15 minutes under general anesthetic for a wound, that's considered surgery, right? That's surgery, yes. And it's not normal to have to have structures underneath your structure and around the platysma muscle and then sutures to close up a wound and have a scar that will last the rest of your life that is four inches long. That's not normal, is it? Normal as compared to what? Well, most people don't end up having a cut, and as the result of that cut, they have an hour and 15 minutes of surgery and a four-inch scar. The reason she went into surgery is because of the location of the wound. Right, I understand that. But she still, nevertheless, required suturing. Is that right? Yes. She had a diagnosis from Dr. Santos of post-trauma anemia. And that's from a severe loss of blood, right? I would say a mild loss of blood. Moderate. Let me ask you something, doctor. When did you get here? At about 8 o'clock. In Kerrville? In Kerrville, I arrived here Monday night. All right. And did you confer with Mr. Shook following Dr. Santos's testimony last night? Mr. Shook? This man. Yes, I did. You conferred with him about your testimony last night. I spoke with him over the phone. Okay, when was the last time she was given an anesthetic? Miss Routier? Yes, I have no idea. Can you refer to your notes? Well, let me ask you this. If it was previously testified at 5 a.m., would you disagree with that? 5 a.m. on the day of the, of the, on June the 6th? Right. If anesthesia was terminated at 5 a.m. on June the 6th, would you disagree with that? I would have to see the records. Okay. You might be able to find the anesthesia report quicker than me. Is that it? Mm-hmm. It was about 5 a.m. when we stopped monitoring her. When you stopped, when you say stopped monitoring, that means that whenever medication is causing her to be under general anesthetic, that's when it is terminated. They allow patients to emerge from anesthesia, and that must have been when they transported her out of the operating room. Okay, all right. How many times have you spoken with either district attorneys, investigators, or representatives of the district attorney's office about your testimony? I spoke to them twice before I arrived here. So twice in Dallas, and then last night? Last night, the he just told me when I was supposed to arrive in the morning. Did he talk to you at all on Monday? I don't believe he did. Okay. Are you being paid for your time here today? No. 
Mr. Douglas then says, pass the witness. And then the redirect takes place by Mr. Toby Shook. And he begins with, Dr. Dillon, Mr. Douglas asked you some questions about the cut jugular and jugular vein. Did Darley Routier have any of those injuries? No. Okay. You said something about a sheath. Yes, there's a carotid sheath that surrounds the two vessels, the internal jugular vein, the carotid artery, and a large nerve called the vagus nerve. And it's just a fibrous structure in the neck that's continuous with other fibrous material that would sort of hold you together. There was no cut to her jugular or carotid artery or anything like that. Was there? No. And in layman's terms, the skin was cut, the fat was cut, and the platysma, which is in the fat, is that right? Yes. That's it? That was it. Mr. Shook then says, that's all I have, Judge. The court says, may this witness be excused by agreement of both sides. Mr. Douglas then says, I have one question, Your Honor. Court says, all right. On this ruler, there's millimeters marked. Is that right? Yes. Okay. And would you agree that in distance, that there was a distance of approximately two to three millimeters to the artery of this woman, the carotid artery? Over a very short distance, it was, we could see the sheath. I didn't actually measure it. Okay, but answer my question. And my question is, based upon your training and your experience, could it have been two to three millimeters? I really don't know. I just saw the sheath. Okay, you're not saying no. You're just saying you don't know. I have stated that the wound was superficial and did not damage it. It damaged no significant structures. At a small point, we could see the carotid sheath was exposed. The carotid artery was not exposed. Okay, but it cut down to the carotid sheath. Over. We could see a distance of approximately the two to three millimeters, maybe the amount of the carotid sheath that I could see. The carotid artery is this long, and he demonstrates with his hands. Um, I could see this much. Okay, but certainly you didn't cut down to that. No, that was done by whatever sharp-edged instrument hit Mrs. Routier. Yes, okay. So that instrument made that cut down to that depth. Yes, it did. Mr. Douglason says, okay, that's all I have. Mr. Shook says, nothing further, judge. The court then says, all right, doctor, both sides are excusing this witness. Mr. Douglas says, yes, sir. Mr. Shook, yes, sir. Mr. Mulder, again, part of the defense team, says, subject to our agreement. The court then says, all right, please don't discuss your testimony with anybody who has testified. In other words, don't compare it. You may talk to the attorneys for either side. If someone tries to talk to you about your testimony, please tell the attorney for the side who called you. The witness says, okay. And then the court says, all right, your next witness. The next witness is Jody Fitz, who was a nurse for Darley while she was at the hospital. And we begin with the questioning by Mr. Toby Shook. Tell us your name, please. Jody Fitz, F-I-T-T-S. And how are you employed, sir? I'm a registered nurse at Baylor University Medical Center. Okay. Tell the jury your education and training you have to have to hold that position. I've been a nurse for three years, registered nurse, about a year and three months in the emergency room, two years before that in ICU, and about eight and a half years as an emergency paramedic before that. Okay. 
where do you work? I work at the emergency department there at Baylor University Medical Center in downtown Dallas. Okay, how long have you been at Baylor? A year and a half now. And you are an emergency room nurse. Is that correct? That's correct. Tell the jurors what your duties are as an emergency room nurse. We, at the emergency room there at Baylor, we take care of anything from what we call primary care patients, which is any kind of little small injury or illnesses, all the way up to a major trauma. We are a major trauma center there in the city. Okay, let me turn your attention to June 6th, 1996, and ask if you were on duty during those morning hours. I was. I was supposed to have left at 2 o'clock in the morning that day, but it was an extremely busy night, so I stayed over. Okay, and a little after 3 o'clock or so, did you get notice that there would be some patients coming in that were that had been stabbed, some stabbing victims? Right. We got, actually, the call we received was that five minutes out, we had a multiple stab victim, five-year-old, coming in. Okay, and then it was just a few minutes after that that we got a call that we would be getting a, the child, they said, they had been doing CPR on, and we got prepared for that. And then we got a second call saying that we would be getting a second patient, a female, the mother of the child that was awake and talking. Okay, and what did you do in preparation for that? There are several things that we have to do. We have to, there's a lot of staffing situations that we have to do. Each major trauma patient gets two nurses assigned to them immediately. And we have to actually don garb, that is our trauma gear that covers and things in glasses, things to protect us from different things. And there's equipment, IV bags, and any kind of equipment we may possibly use, we set it out. Did you get ready in time to receive the female victim? Not as well as we would like to. We only had a couple of minutes notice for the lady that was coming in. Of course, the child, we were very prepared for him in the major trauma room up front. There were several other major trauma victims in our other trauma rooms down on the side. So we had our last room way down the hall and we set it up for the lady that was coming in. And did you see the patient as she arrived? Yes, sir, I did. I was standing outside. The hall that we were in, the room we were in, is at the end of a long hall with the front door at the other end of it. I then put on all my stuff. Some of our technicians were setting up the equipment in the room, and I was standing outside of the room waiting for the stretcher to come in. And as they came in, I could hear the lady screaming and could see her in the stretcher as she came down the hall. What was she screaming? She was screaming two different things. The first thing I heard was her screaming, asking for pain medication. I need pain medication, something along that line. And then she would alternate that with, why did they kill my boys? Why did they kill my boys? That was in the hall. As I saw her coming, then I had to get into the room to get ready. And once she hit the room, she kept asking us, why would he kill my boys? Why would he kill my boys? And then give me something for pain. Okay. Now you saw her as they were taking her down towards the room. Is that right? Right. I was staring at her down the hall. Had the boy arrived already? The boy was there in the room completely opposite, down the way, way down, down at the end of the hall. As they wheeled her by that room, her head was turned as if looking into that room. 
Okay, did you see any reaction as she went by that room? There was a lot of reactions to everything, but no, I didn't see, I was concerned. I knew what was going on in that first room. I wasn't involved in there at the time, but I knew what was going on. But I was very concerned when she turned her head that way that she would see her son in there and that would escalate her emotional state. But that's what I was afraid of. But she continued to yell for pain. Right. And then why? The first thing. Why did they kill my boys? And then why did he kill my boy, my two boys? Right. In the room, she said, why would he do that? Why would he kill my boys? Describe her physical condition when you saw her there in your trauma room. She arrived to me completely nude, uh, covered head to toe in dried blood. She had a dressing around her neck and around this right arm. Okay, what did you do then? We immediately take them off the stretcher. You've got to understand, it was a very stressful situation. It was a horrible sight to see all of this. We get the people lowered onto the table. We have the technicians start bathing them, washing them down. We need to assess what their injuries are right away. And so as soon as she got over, the technicians there were taking the dressings off of the arms and began taking the dressing off the neck here. Okay. And the paramedics were giving us a report about what the injuries were. Her neck was bleeding. Is that right? Her neck initially was not bleeding. We pulled the dressing off. It was initially not bleeding, but the surgeon there had to explore that wound just a little bit and look at it. And after he had touched it just slightly, a bit of blood squirted out of the wound, which would, to us, indicate an arterial bleeding and that we... And that we don't want to mess with that in the emergency room. So we immediately covered that back up. Okay. Now, as far as what the actual damage was, you don't know that at that time, right? No. We knew that it was bleeding and some indicating some type of arterial blood bleed. I believe it ended up not being an arterial bleed. But for us, that's not something we need to mess with. You lose a lot of blood that way. You just... You want to make sure that pressure is applied to that wound. Right. All right. And did you see the other injuries on her? Right. She had another injury up here by her neck. She had this neck wound and then also one up here too, two different wounds. And then one like a stab or puncture wound in her forearm right here. Okay. I have a picture of that on my record. Okay. Let me show you what's been marked as States Exhibit 28-A. Is that the location of the wound you saw on the forearm? That's the forearm wound that I saw. Yes. Okay. And then states exhibit number 28-B. Is that the neck area and then the shoulder? Right. And then that second wound there. All right. Did you examine other parts of her body, her arms? We examined her head to toe. Let me ask you this. Is that something you're concerned about examining her head to toe? Well, certainly, especially with her being covered in blood and dried blood. That would cover up many injuries. It could cover up all kinds of things. Did you find any other injuries on her? No, just the simple cuts that I've explained here and here and here. We rolled her on her back and couldn't find anything. Any other injuries on her right arm at all other than just this cut here? No, just a clean stab wound straight through here or a puncture wound. 
Okay. What was she... Do you inquire whether she's alert, knows what's going on, that kind of thing? Right. We need to determine that right away so we'll know what we're dealing with, especially in a trauma situation. We want to know if they're oriented right away so we know to be concerned about head injuries or anything like that. So what do you do for that? How do you determine that? We ask them if they know where they're at, if they know if they have any medical allergies, any medical conditions, any surgeries, and if they're taking any medications. Okay, did she seem alert and oriented to you? Yes, Mrs. Retier was able to answer all my questions. Okay, do you watch for signs of shock when the patients come in there? Sure we do. What you're asking me about shock is not what we call medical shock, but an emotional state of shock. We're concerned about that. She was able to answer all my questions. Correct. Responded to all of your questions you asked. I even asked her what medications she had been taking. What did, and is it important to find out if they're on any medications? Sure. We need to know exactly what medications they're on in case we give them something that might in some way not work with the medicine. What medication was she on? She told me she was on Fastin and Pondamin, uh, neither of those medications I had never dealt with. I found out since that they're diet control, appetite suppressant type medication. And she told me, I asked her, I don't know what those are for. And she told me that they were diet pills. Okay, so she was on diet pills. Mm-hmm. All right. Was she in there any great length of time? She was in, I had her in there exactly 13 minutes. Okay. And then they take her off to surgery. Yes. Okay. Did you remove a necklace from her neck? Right. When the technicians pulled the dressing off the wound on her neck, a chain was freed around her neck. I took that off, set it aside, and later, I believe, one of the other nurses handed that over to the Roulette Police Department. Okay, was that under the gauze? It was underneath the dressing the paramedics had applied. Okay, let me show you what's been marked as States Exhibit 26. Does this appear to be the necklace? This looks similar to the necklace. I couldn't tell you if it was exactly the same one or not. Okay, and it was unattached? It was unattached. Okay. I didn't have to undo it. Okay. Judge, I would like to enter this for record purposes at this time. The court then says, states exhibit what? Mr. Shook says, 26. The court says, for record only. Yes, sir. Any objection? Not for record purposes. All right. States exhibit number 26 is admitted for record purposes only. Mr. Shook then continues. Do you see Ms. Routier here in the courtroom today? Yes, sir. Her hair is a little bit different, but that's her. And the scar we see here, is that the area that y'all were applying pressure to? Yes, sir. That's exactly where I had seen it. Okay. That's all the questions we have, Judge. Mr. Preston Douglas then says, I don't have any questions, Judge. The court then says, this gentleman would be excused to go back to Dallas. Both sides agree to excuse him. Mr. Douglas says, yes, sir. The court says, thank you for coming, sir. Watch your step down. And that will do it for this particular section of the Darley Routier trial. Uh, next up, we have an ICU nurse by the name of Christopher Wilgus. 
And then we will follow that with the testimony of Phyllis Jackson, who is a a police officer, actually, for Baylor. Baylor has their own police department there at the hospital. Um, A couple of things that I wanted to kind of go over. Um, This is the first time, if you've noticed, that we've heard about the necklace um, that Darley had been wearing and that had been embedded within her wound. Um, It was underneath when she was at the house. The paramedics had put some dressing over the top of it. And the nurse testified uh, during this instance that they did not have to undo or unclasp the necklace. And that's likely because the paramedics at the house attempted to, but because it was so embedded in her neck, they didn't want to run the risk of taking it out and maybe causing further damage. So that's my speculation. I'm sure we'll find out more about uh, about the necklace as we go on. The other thing that I found very curious, and you might as well, is that um, the diet drugs that Darley was on, they mention Fastin and Pandamin, I believe is what is uh, how it's pronounced. Um, first of all, let's talk about Fastin. Fastin, according to uh, rxlist.com, is a type of appetite suppressant, um, has a very long name to it, and it's supposed to be used over a short term, a few weeks, um, in addition to a diet based on caloric restriction. The brand name drug, Fastin, as of this date, which is 2023, is actually no longer available in the U.S. Um, A generic version however, is available. But here are its side effects. It has a fast heart rate, um, elevated blood pressure, overstimulation, restlessness, dizziness, insomnia, euphoria, dry mouth, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, again, dry mouth, I don't know why that's on there twice, constipation, unpleasant taste in the mouth, hives, impotence, palpitations, feeling uneasy, tremor, headache, and changes in sex drive. So that is drug number one that Darley was on. The second drug that I had mentioned went by the name of Pandamin. And um, actually, that is the official name of the drug Fenfen. Now, if you were around in the 1990s, you are very familiar with this. This was this diet drug was all the rage. I mean, everybody was taking a Fenfen, but it was actually uh, taken off of the shelf in 1997 when the FDA strongly advised the manufacturer Wyeth to do so because the FDA had linked uh, conclusively these drugs to severe heart and lung damage, including heart disease, primary pulmonary hypertension, which is essentially a rare lung disorder that causes a high blood pressure in the lungs. And as the result of this fenfen being so dangerous uh, to people, uh, there were many people who sued and won the suit against the pharmaceutical uh, company that offered it. Now, some symptoms of Fenfen uh, were swollen ankles and legs, a bluish color of the lips or skin, 
chest pain or pressure, usually in the front of the chest, dizziness or fainting spells, fatigue, weakness, and increased abdomen size. And I only bring this up because, of course, this case happened uh, very early in 1997, uh, prior to this drug being taken off the market, uh, Fenfen, at least. And when they talked about these drugs, it's very difficult to really understand what they are uh, unless you know... I mean, obviously, we know their supposed purpose, but we didn't. We don't know their side effects and so forth. And again, you know, I'm currently speculating here, but I really believe that the defense will probably bring this up uh, in the future. We just have to wait and see. As I've always uh, told you, I have not read ahead. I don't know what's going to happen in the case. But uh, nonetheless, I thought that that would be very interesting for you to learn and hear about. And again, next episode will be uh, Christopher Wilgus, who uh, was the ICU nurse, and then Phyllis Jackson, who was part of the Baylor Police Department. And those two will be coming up. Uh, their testimony will be coming up very soon. So until then, please stay tuned. There's lots more to come. Uh please subscribe so that you can actually get notified whenever a new episode is released. And it would be so helpful if you would just give it a like. I mean, if you find yourself coming back time and time again to listen to these episodes, uh, please just uh, go ahead and give it a, a little like. It would be greatly, greatly appreciated. So we will talk next time.